I'm Elle Fanning, and this is A Vespucci Story. That morning in April 1887, Susanna Medora Salter watched her seven young children race toward the unbroken Kansas horizon. Their white shirts and pinafores flapped on a clothesline, like souls chasing after their little bodies, unable to catch up. A woman at church who had birthed twins once told Susanna that her two girls had developed a curious language, one only they could understand, a pure, holy language. Susanna's children were so close in age that they too had begun to babble their secrets to each other. As Susanna watched her children giggle and bounce through the prairie, the sky a hard blue above, she thanked God that they had all survived. Don't go too far, she yelled. You'll run all the way to Oklahoma. Susanna began to unpin the fresh dry laundry. She always hung three clotheslines, two with the household washing and one hidden in the middle with her underthings. She lived half a mile from her nearest neighbor, but the thought of someone walking past her house and seeing her britches flying in the wind made her stomach leap. She was in her work dress a soft old calico number meant to be seen by no one but her husband and children. Her good silk dresses were packed away. She was only 27, but each new life she brought into the world had made those fineries harder and harder to squeeze into. As she unpinned a sheet, Susanna had a rare and modest thought, a new silk dress in peacock green. She shook out the sheet and the thought along with it. A breeze tumbled across the prairie and licked up juniper and ragweed, tickling Susanna's nose. She exploded in a sneeze, peeing herself all over. Like Mother Mary's waters, she sighed. Snatching a clean pair of bloomers from the middle line and waddling into the house, she scrubbed the soiled undergarments and let them dry over the hearth, reminding herself to remove them before her husband came home. Revived, she walked out into the porch and whooped at her children to come back in her soft voice gliding across the crisp, empty prairie. When the children ran back into view, they saw their mother, little in a drab brown dress, against the Salter home, a handsome two-story house made from red brick that their grandfather had fired in a kiln himself. Susanna and her children were patting bread dough into loaves, covered in flurries of flour, when the knock came at the door. We're from town. She opened the door slowly. Six men in top hats, clean coats, and neat mustaches waited patiently on her stoop. They surveyed the little barefoot woman, streaks of flour across her old brown dress like sleet on a dirt road. Susanna recognized them from everywhere, church, the general store, the blacksmiths. There were only a thousand people in the fledgling town, and none of them, save the midwife, had seen her like this. My husband isn't home, she said flatly. We know that, ma'am, said the eldest, taking off his hat and holding it to his chest. Her veins turned to barbed cattle wire. Did he get bucked off his horse, she gasped. Was he struck down? Was it a fit? Mrs. Salter, your husband isn't dead. He's safe in his office. It's you we are here to speak with. May we come in? The men huddled around the table silently as Susanna poured them coffee. She caught one of them looking at her drawers, which were still drying over the hearth, and she snatched them down and stuffed them in her apron pocket. What's this about, gentlemen? Has there been a crime committed? 
Susanna's children inspected the men and giggled, the youngest curling up in his mother's lap. One child spread a naughty handful of flour on the floor. They drew in it with their little fingers and babbled at one another. We are here about political matters, Mrs. Salter. Is this about my involvement in temperance? I have no intentions towards upheaval, just towards the better way. The eldest gentleman leaned forward towards Susanna, who bounced her sleeping toddler gently against her bosom. Mrs. Lewis Salter, you've been nominated as mayor of Argonia. The men stared at Susanna in her kitchen, waiting for her response. She looked like a frightened doe, and her bare feet began to sweat and stick to the floor. She and the men were silent, but the children kept playing. The littlest one was fast asleep in her arms. Gentlemen, I never wrote my name down. The older man, named Abner, explained to her that a group of opposition men had put her name on the party ticket as a joke. They wanted to humiliate Susanna and the rest of the women who had just been granted the right to vote in Kansas elections. The jokesters were called the Wets and were the all-male members of Argonia's anti-prohibition faction. They figured that putting Susanna's name on the ticket would solidify a win for the Wets, because even though the Republicans supported prohibition, any Republican man with good sense would rather hold his nose and vote for a Wet than for a Republican woman. This would secure the Wets' anti-prohibition agenda and put women back in their place. Come to your mother, children. She has a lot of work to do before your father gets home, said Abner. Abner was a grandfather himself and had a gentle way of speaking to children that made them listen. The children hopped off the men and ran, giggling to their mother. The men stood up, swiped the flower off their clothes, put their hats on, and made their way at the door. Thank you, Susanna, said Abner graciously. I'm very sorry to bother you with this farce. I will personally see what I can do to change the ballot and have a talk with those wets. It was mean nonsense. Please give my regards to Lewis. They were almost out the door when Susanna, still seated motionlessly with the sleeping toddler in her lap, spoke. I accept. Pardon, said one of the men. I accept the nomination. She accepted the nomination because that's what you do in a place that doesn't have much. Take it and see if it takes. To do otherwise, to turn down a perfectly good thing, is vain and meaner than anything the wets could do. To her, the nomination was a gift, still in its wrapping. The men stood at Susanna's door with their mouths agape, except for Abner, who took his hat off and held it to his chest. Then it is my duty, as chairman of this party, to ensure you win the ticket. Come on, boys. We've got to get campaigning. Afterwards, Susanna hauled in a bucket of water from the pump outside. She wiped down all of her children, gave them an early supper, and sent them upstairs to bed. She then began to wash herself over the bucket, from her head to her feet. She fixed her hair and put on her whalebone corset and the better of her silk dresses. 
When her husband, Louis Salter, came home that evening, he was surprised to see her waiting for him alone. She had set the table for two. Louis kissed Susanna on the cheek without looking at her and threw his bag and papers on the table. He was the county clerk and had taken to blowing off steam when he got home from work. He complained of the duties of his station, the bureaucracy, the backbiters, the inability to get ahead despite his connections. He was the son-in-law of the former mayor for Lord's sake. And today, he lamented following Susanna's admission, they are after my wife, my heart. Once he had calmed a little, she told him softly, I accepted it. Accepted what? asked Lewis. I accepted the nomination. They're out campaigning for me now. Lewis frowned, firing off every reason why she shouldn't run. What are you doing, Susanna? This was a cruel joke. Those men don't actually think a woman can lead. I'm sure they do, Lewis. They are country folk, but they know about Cleopatra, Elizabeth, and Victoria. It's a long-standing fact that we can lead. This is different, replied Lewis, exasperated. Those women inherited their power. This is democracy, the great American experiment. You don't have an empire behind you. You don't have the wealth of nations. Your womb isn't carrying the next king. You must fulfill the will of the people. They can overthrow you. You will be on your own. You haven't even taken part of democracy yet. You aren't even a suffragist. If you fail, your experiment ends. I know this much, said Susanna, a rare hint of crossness in her voice. I went to college, just like you. You majored in dressmaking and never graduated. You know very well I got cholera in my last semester. Lewis realized that he had gone far off the rails and apologized. Susanna remembered her most recent temperance meeting. She saw Miss Cook, who always pretended to be mourning a distant relative in Omaha so she could wear a veil over her black eyes. She saw the woman who always shoved a second helping of cake in her pocket because her husband spent all their money at the saloon. She saw the woman that the town's boys called a witch because her nose had never quite reset. She saw the sullen, unmarried 16-year-old who had never left her father's house and had birthed three misshapen children, all touched by an unspeakable affliction. Over the next day, the Republican campaign secured two-thirds of the town vote for Susanna Salter. She was sworn in soon after. The town preacher gave a quick sermon in front of the crowd and urged Salter to lead with the selflessness of a woman. Reporters from all over the country rode into Argonia on horseback to take her picture. She was the first woman to be elected to public office in the United States. Susanna wasted no time in growing the town of Argonia. She started with the public sector, working on infrastructure projects that would bring the town into the 20th century. Her work was egalitarian, nonpartisan, and practical, yet required a singular kind of inspiration which she possessed. As a mother of seven children, she recognized the importance of both warmth and efficiency. A public park with a dedicated playground, a municipal shelter for the down and out, a big brick meeting hall with a tornado shelter in the basement. Susanna's projects were never self-promotional. In fact, most townspeople never knew what she thought of them in the first place. She swore to be a selfless leader, and that she was. Working three full-time jobs as a mayor, mother, and wife, never abandoning any post. 
she earned $1 a year for her service to Argonia's government. Many were curious as to how she managed it. She had her husband build a large playpen right outside the window of the town hall so she could keep an eye on her children during daily meetings. She was used to the old rhythm of waking with the rooster, but took a trip to a larger town to buy a mechanical alarm clock. She went to sleep later and woke when the sky was still its darkest. She taught herself to cook meals all in the same pot. She used her one dollar to buy the cotton for three new pairs of bloomers. If she were to have an emergency at the town hall, she wouldn't have the time to scrub out her old ones. Two months into her tenure, Susanna discovered she was pregnant. As she began to show, the townsfolk whispered to each other. How had she and Lewis found the time? The people of Argonia watched their little town quietly improve and expand, all without having to hear much at all from their woman mayor. They began to love this new situation, a best of both worlds. When Susanna gave birth to her son during Christmas time, the town lit up their houses and held a parade down Main Street. She returned to work five days later in her silk dress, three pairs of bloomers layered underneath. On her first day back, she held her infant to her chest and listened to the Board of Supervisors discuss the allocation of funds for a new civil works project. She sat quietly, as she always did, and let them row over how to spend the public's money. It was always the same with these men. In the middle of a heated discussion over the location of a new municipal urinal, she spoke up. There was a cholera outbreak at the Big Osage Indian encampment about a day out of town, she told them. If there was cholera in the Osage territory, it could soon come to Argonia. Susanna had heard about the story of the Broad Street pump over in Great Britain, how so many cholera deaths were linked to an unsanitary water pump in a poor part of London. Many Argonia women relied on the town's municipal pumps for their washing and often washed dirty diapers near it, which was known to be a source of transmission. Susanna suggested using the money to begin a town pipe system that could deliver fresh water into the buildings of Argonia. Maybe there could even be a public wash station, a laundry. Do you think the people of Argonia are dirty like the Osage savages? Asked one man incredulously. Just add some alcohol to the water. But Susanna, we know you won't stand for that. The men laughed. Susanna patted her infant, staring out the window and watching her other children play. A week later, three Argonians died from cholera, linked to a contaminated pump near a town latrine. The Board of Supervisors immediately allocated the disputed money to begin a new water works project. Susanna knew that although she was mayor, she could not persuade these men, nor enforce a set of rules among them. The best she could do was to try and keep decorum by occasionally giving a man who was far out of line the same stern look she gave a misbehaving child. Her job was to provide selflessly, to be resourceful, to give quiet input, and for the men to take as they saw fit. The truth was that Susanna was the muse who sang in these men, giving them ideas for them to claim as their own. She didn't complain. Women couldn't own real property. So how could they be expected to claim intellectual property? How could Susanna have known anything different? A few mornings later, Susanna awoke in the dark. Even though she would have been embarrassed to admit it, this was her new favorite part of her day. A fire snapping in the fireplace in every bedroom as a light snow fell outside. Her handsome husband snuffling at the sound of the alarm clock, then falling back to sleep next to her. Her children warm and sleeping soundly in the other rooms the smell of clear prairie coming in through a cracked window. For a brief moment every morning, she could focus on a brand new day. She could let her thoughts float. 
Later that morning, when that blissful little spell was broken, Susanna began her day, rolling over to lift her infant out of his bedside cradle to nurse. When she picked him up, he was stiff and cold in her hands. The townspeople poured into the funeral parlor. Others gathered around it, reciting the Lord's Prayer. A photographer gathered the Salter family together with Susanna in the middle, holding the tiny body in her arms. The photographer positioned his tripod, threw on his hood, and flashed the bulb at them. The children couldn't sit still and came out blurry. Lewis couldn't stop heaving in agony and came out even worse. The only clear figures were the lifeless bundle and Susanna, who stared straight forward, inert. Myrtle, Susanna's friend from her temperance meetings, came to help the Salters. Unmarried, she was the only woman in town who at the time. A little past noon, Myrtle found Susanna curled up under the covers, staring into the fireplace. She sat next to Susanna and ran her fingers through her dark hair. Myrtle tried to comfort her with words from the Bible, assuring Susanna that her baby had met the Lord without sin and would dwell in his kingdom forever. Susanna turned her head to look at Myrtle and managed a faint smile. The sound of beautiful music will never compare to the relief of silence. A meadow will never outshine the deepest darkness. Nothing will ever taste as good as water straight from the earth. I've begun to think that death is like that, like cold, clean water. Myrtle didn't grasp it, but she knew that Susanna, her only friend, had begun to wander. Countless women from town came to the Salter household to pay their respects. Susanna laid in bed upstairs, listening to the visitors bustle in and out. She heard them share their opinions with Myrtle, who stayed silent. Poor dear. Her nerves must have made him sick in her belly. Poor dear. This is all because she worked right up until her waters broke. Poor dear. It's because she returned to the town hall too soon after having him. Poor dear. She was probably too preoccupied to know that something was wrong. Poor dear. Oh, well, she probably didn't want this one anyway. A week after her baby's death, Susanna walked down the main road to the town hall in Lewis's coat, her children in tow. They obeyed her, kissing her sweetly before playing quietly in the corner of the meeting room. It had grown too cold for the playpen. Susanna took her usual seat by the window. The women in town saw her and whispered to one another. Susanna called the meeting to order. None of the men in the room wanted to begin the conversation, so she asked them to return to their discussion of the municipal urinal. She paid attention to their argument and to her children, quietly observing both. Under her dress and coat, her breast slowly throbbed, wrapped in a bandage of cabbage and plasters to stop her milk. The weeks went on. More projects were planned, more money allocated. As soon as the ground thawed in springtime, the shovels pierced the dirt and buildings flew up like cornstalks. Clean water ran in every new public building and would soon reach the homes of the townspeople. Argonia was thriving. No one could argue that, not even the wets. At night, Susanna had begun to climb on top of Lewis, and he couldn't help but gaze at his wife from this new angle, intoxicated by the parts of her that she used to hide under him. After he passed out next to her in a roaring slumber, Susanna took a flask of gin, which she had lifted from the coat pocket of a board member in the dead of winter, and walked out into the prairie in her nightgown, 
She'd lay down in the tall grass, sip the gin, and stare at the night sky, studying the white-hot stars as if they were her children in their pinafores. Some nights she would watch the Kansas sky swirl and turn peacock green, like the dress that continued to flash in her mind without warning. It would have been her final project in college, the piece she had spent years planning, the one that would have earned her degree in dressmaking. As soon as she felt the first sting of hail against her skin, she'd run back inside the red brick house, gather Lewis and their children, and head down to the cellar, where they would huddle under banners of dried vegetables until the twister passed. At the town hall, Susanna listened to the men's discussions, and as usual, quietly sang to herself. When her hands weren't taking notes, they were sewing together pieces of turquoise, gold, and peacock green silk in an intricate pattern that spun like a kaleidoscope. The men became uneasy, as over the weeks, a little sample grew into a giant puff of green that seemed to engulf little Susanna like some monstrous Amazonian vine. Regardless of her newfound quirks and oddities, Susanna was as capable of a mayor as she had ever been. Without her, the Board of Supervisors was a bloodhound without its invisible, guiding sense of smell. With the elections coming up soon, they began to plan Susanna's re-election. When they brought up the matter with her at a meeting, she politely ruled herself out. Anger boiled among the men. But we gave you what you wanted. Do you want to be nothing more than a housewife? Do you know how far this will set your women's causes back? Ah, this is a bargaining chip. Well, what do you want? Two dollars? To tax alcohol to excess? It'll pay for a lovely garden in the middle of the square. Come now, why won't you run? I don't want to, Susanna reaffirmed flatly. She took a furtive glance through the window and realized that most of the women outside who were scowling and yelling had stopped by with casseroles and condolences when her baby died. She decided to publicly address the town. That day, every Argonian showed up to the town square and waited for their mayor. Lewis escorted his wife through the booing and jeering crowd and helped her up on the platform. She wore her new gown, which fit her perfectly. And when the light hit her at the right angle, she lit up like an emerald. The crowd fell silent. Susanna composed herself and addressed her audience. Friends, I am not seeking another term because I was never your mayor to begin with. I am your mascot. I am not Cleopatra, Elizabeth, or Victoria. I don't have an empire behind me. I don't have the wealth of nations. My womb isn't carrying the next king. All I have is myself in this great experiment. And that self means nothing yet to this American democracy. She pointed at the town hall. Ladies, it's the same in there as it is in your homes. Assigning me to the top means nothing if our personhood isn't recognized at the bottom. I'm a talking parrot in a cage. A true leader is a person first and a politician second. She must be whole. She must have an identity, a self that is truly her own. It cannot just be in the home or in the office. It must be cultivated and recognized. It cannot be slowly picked upon and diminished by the whims of others. Otherwise, no matter what choices she makes, she will always be held in contempt. Her decisions will never be fully trusted. Her ideas will be stolen and will lose their intention. Men, 
It's much easier to check a box and elect a woman to a high office than to really know your wife. I accept the job for all of us, but women folk, I'm abandoning it for you. We will be back in power, real power, when our personhood is built and recognized from our bare feet to our bonnets. I just hope that as mayor, I was able to show the town of Argonia a sliver of what could be. Before I am a mayor, I am a woman. Before I am a woman, I am a person. And this is my decision to make. We all have a tornado within us, an unpredictable whirlwind that picks us up and takes us where we need to be.